This is Alternative Health Tools, and it's episode 166, and it's titled Diabetes and Nutrition. Alternative Health Tools is where we discover alternative health tools and explore integrative healing philosophies for both individuals and practitioners. Welcome to another episode of Alternative Health Tools. I'm your co-host, Lisa Victoria, from across the pond in the UK. And today we're joined by the wonderful Dr. John Putalil, and he's from Dr. John on Health. He's a medicine pediatrician and allergist for over 30 years, and he really focuses on helping patients really heal themselves. He's written four books, which have won awards. Um, one of them's Eat You Live, another book on diabetes, another one on surviving cancer, and another one on what to do if your child has cancer. And today what we're talking about is what is diabetes? What's the difference between type one and type two? Can you reverse them? How do you reverse them? And all the wonderful um, information that Dr. John's already shared with me off air. So thank you so much, Dr. John, for joining us today and sharing a wealth of knowledge with our listeners. Lisa, I thank you and I thank our listeners because I believe type 2 diabetes is an important topic because the incidence is increasing, not Mm -hmm. only in adults, but also in younger age people. And the longer you have it, the longer the chances of complications, your vision can be damaged, you can lose your eyesight, your kidneys can be damaged, you may be tied to a dialysis machine, your legs may be amputated, you may have heart problems. So all sorts of complications, a very serious disease, but I feel we can do better if you take charge. The consequences are huge from from what you're saying, but actually we can take charge. And that's what you're going to share with our listeners today. I'm really excited to hear what what you can share with our listeners to support them if if they indeed have type 1 or type 2 diabetes or if any of their family, friends or relatives are living with these conditions. Let let us start with what is diabetes and why is it divided into type 1 and type 2? Diabetes is the condition that is diagnosed when your blood sugar level is high. The blood sugar is not the table sugar that you put in your coffee or in your cake or cookie. That is sucrose. Blood sugar refers to glucose. The source, the major source in modern day diet is from grains, wheat, rice, corn, and such grains. Each time you eat, it is digested in the intestine and glucose is absorbed. So when the glucose level in the blood is high, you are called a diabetic. Now, what's the difference between type 1 and type 2? To understand that, you need to know what is insulin and what is the role of insulin in the body. Insulin is the hormone released by your pancreas when blood glucose level goes up. Mm -hmm. Now, if you live in an apartment or a house, you know there is somebody outside when the doorbell rings. You still have the option of opening the door or not, but at least you know. Every cell in the body, we have got 30 trillion cells in the body. Every cell can use glucose to produce energy. However, when glucose is outside, there is no doorbell for glucose to ring to let the cell know it is outside. That is the job of insulin. So insulin is the one that rings the doorbell And then the glucose molecule has to send in a wagon to the door, open the door, load up glucose molecules, bring them in. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you don't have insulin, glucose is outside, you are a diabetic, 
but the cells are starving. Yes. And they vital organ cells starve, they die, and the person dies. This is what happens in type 1 diabetes because their pancreas has been damaged by what we call an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Their own immune system attacks and kills or damages the insulin producing beta cells in the pancreas. So there is plenty of glucose outside, but there is no insulin. These children used to die by age 10 until insulin was discovered 100 years ago. Wow. And once insulin was administered, the lifespan of these children became normal, the quality of life improved. So the doctor, Dr. Elliot Jocelyn in Boston, he treated the most number of type 1 diabetic children. And he was amazed at the recovery. They all survived. So he thought when adults came with elevated blood glucose level, he thought the same thing is happening in adult. It's just a matter of age, but the mechanism is the same. Mm -hmm. So he injected them with insulin. And sure enough, their blood glucose level went down. So he said, well, the solution is simple. If you're an adult, give insulin. However, what happened later was somebody tested their blood when a test became available to measure the level of insulin in the blood. To their amazement, they found adults with elevated blood glucose level already had enough insulin in the blood. Mm -hmm. So that created a problem. Their pancreas was functioning. Their insulin is normal. So why are they still having elevated blood glucose level? And they could not find an answer. Now, At the same time, there's a parallel story going on. Penicillin was discovered. And in 1940, the first cases of penicillin resistance was published. So one endocrinologist thought, maybe this is what happening with insulin. The body is resisting insulin, similar to what is happening with the penicillin. Mm -hmm. So he proposed it as a hypothesis. But endocrinologists were so happy, they did not want to wait for validation of the hypothesis. They just accepted it. Mm -hmm. And they told everybody, this is what is happening. Then they have a problem. You know, which cells are, there are 200 different types of cell in the body. Which ones are resisting insulin? If everybody is resisting, then the person cannot survive. Mm -hmm. So they tailored their argument. They picked three cells based on the laboratory findings, not based on logic or mechanism or measurement of resistance, because there is no test to measure the degree of insulin resistance, is there? Have you ever heard of a test? No, you can measure the blood blood sugar levels, but not the insulin resistance. Right, so whether you you are newly diagnosed or you had it for 20 years, whether you have complications, is it because your resistance is getting worse? If you give somebody insulin, that blood glucose level goes down. Is it because your insulin resistance goes down? First of all, if you are resistant to an antibiotic, doctor will not give you the same antibiotic. Mm -hmm. But here you are told you are diabetic, type 2 diabetic. I'm talking about type 2 diabetic. Type 1 need insulin, otherwise they cannot survive. Mm -hmm. But type 2, you are resistant to insulin and the doctor gives you insulin. How How do you justify that? And sure enough, the blood glucose level goes down. Where does that sugar go? Does it go into cells that are resistant? Or does it go into cells that are supposedly sensitive anyway? So they have no problem getting glucose inside. So how does it help? So this is the question that I'm asking. You know, if you keep hemoglobin A1C below 7, you still 
have complications of diabetes, right? Yes. So if you keep it below seven with insulin, you can still have your leg amputated. You can still have kidney damage. You can still have blindness or eyesight problems. So what is the benefit of getting insulin? The quality of your life goes down the moment you start insulin because you're so scared, if, especially if you have had a hypoglycemic reaction. When you travel, I know people who carry food in their handbag mm -hmm. because they're afraid they may have a delay in travel. They need to have food. They have to verify food is available when they reach their destination. Well, my own friend who was a doctor, he was a diabetic, type 2 diabetic. When we invite him for a meal, he will look around and see whether he likes the food. And then he will say, oh, I need to take an extra dose of insulin because I'm going to eat a lot. Wow. The food looks so good. Wow. So what he was told was, if you keep the A1C below seven, you are under quote unquote control. Mm -hmm. What you are controlling is the symptom. You are not controlling disease. Glucose control is not diabetes control. Yes. That yeah. is a, a, a message. If we can give people, that will be wonderful. And people like you, I'm depending on you, Lisa, to <laughs> let people know that glucose control is not diabetes control. Yeah. And like you say, we're treating the symptom, not the cause. So I'm really intrigued to, to hear more on how you work with your, your patients and clients to take back that control, because you, you mentioned the word control and, and not just looking after the symptom. The, the, the question is, what is the source of glucose in your blood? Mm -hmm. If you don't put something in your mouth, it cannot be absorbed from the intestine into your body. So what is it that you are eating that contributes to elevation of blood glucose level? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at complex carbohydrate from grains is the reason why most blood glucose level, glucose in the blood is coming from. If you look at the diet 60 years ago, yes. the amount of energy, daily energy from complex carbohydrate was less than 35%. Less than mm -hmm. a third. Now, in developed countries, it is 50%. In developing countries, it is 70%. Wow. Why? Every government is supporting grain farming, either through direct subsidy or fertilizer subsidy or food cards, ration cards, the cheapest food available. Yes. The most easily prepackaged foods available are all based from made with grains. Yes. When is the last time you had a meal or a snack without a grain product? Well, I, I follow a very um, kind of strict diet and I do very low carb diets, but um, there's lots of carbohydrates in a lot of foods and people aren't aware of that. Like, looping back to what you said earlier, Dr. John, it's not about just the table sugar that you're putting on top of food, is it? It's, it's how it's actually hidden within foods that, that turns into sugar in the bloodstream. Yeah, good for you. The way you are conducting yourself eating, you have already identified the problem. Mm. My simple answer is nature never meant grains for humans. Otherwise, we would have had beaks yes. to pick them up. <laughs> That's a very, very funny image, but a very good point. And, and also, we don't have the ability to digest the chaff of the grain. Yes. So it was never meant for humans. Now, that brings us to the next question. If you look at nature, where from which an adult human can get nutrients from, is there any food that you can consume without chewing to get nutrients from? And that's another good question, isn't it? 
you know, often when we're eating whole foods, we have to chew it to get the digestive enzymes going to be able to digest it. Whereas actually exactly. processed food just almost melts in your mouth, doesn't it? It doesn't involve exactly. any chewing. How much can you chew rice, pasta, yeah. <laughs> yeah. noodles, cookies, cupcakes, cakes? How much can you chew? You don't chew. So what happens? The moment you stop chewing, you swallow. Mm-hmm. You end up eating more. And that is part of the problem. Not only the type of food, but how you eat matters also. People are not chewing. And in, on top of that, now people are in the habit of blending and pureeing in, with the intention of getting more nutrients. Mm-hmm. Let me back up a little bit. I want, I want to ask, talk to you about the quantity control. Mm-hmm. Lisa, let us say you are thirsty right now. I bring in 12 ounces of water. Can you predetermine how much water will it take to quench your thirst? It's a very good question. I'd, I'd just drink until I felt like I had enough, but obviously your body is going to respond at a different rate, isn't it? And right. same with exactly. feeling satiated, which I know you talk about on, on your website quite a lot, don't you? Hunger and satiation. And it's, it's having that time to let your food go down. And if you have to chew it and put your knife and fork down in between mouthfuls, you get that feedback from your body. Whereas a cake, like you say, it's just down and we can overload and eat too much. Exactly. So all you have to do is to look at the way we drink. We cannot predict how much will it take. We drink it. How how long will it take? Maybe two, three sips or less than a minute. And when your brain says you are quenched, Where is that water? That water is still in your stomach. It has not been absorbed into the body yet. So how did the brain know? Mm. You had consumed enough water to quench your thirst right now. What I'm suggesting is there is a similar mechanism for solid food, for other nutrients also. But in order for that to happen, you have to chew your food. Release the nutrients to your taste buds and smell receptors. Mm -hmm. They inform the brain. They have direct communication with your uh, centers for control nutrient intake. And they will create the sensation of satisfaction. So what happens is when you eat, you know, how many people can taste rice by itself Mm. or pasta by itself? You taste what is added onto it. Yes. So what happens is since you cannot taste The taste comes from the add-on, not from the pasta or from the rice. So my view is that you are diminishing the taste of the food by adding pasta or rice to it, right? So that's a very good point. And that's, that often comes up quite a lot with my patients when I'm talking with them. They feel like they're deprived if they can't have the pasta or the rice or the bread accompanying mm-hmm. their meals or the, or the beige. And they say, well, what will I have instead? And I say, substitute it out for some vegetables or, you know, something else. Well, what has happened to us because of that way, instead of satisfaction based on taste and enjoyment, the fullness of the stomach has become the criteria for stopping the meal. Mm. And therein lies the primary problem. Mm. When you drink water, you don't drink until your stomach is full, right? Correct. Until your thirst is quenched. That is the fundamental difference in how you eat. And it changed because of cheap foods, grain-based foods that absorb water and give you the feeling of fullness in the stomach. So that you not so only have sense, to change change the what you eat, but how you eat. You know, human brain cannot concentrate on two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you are watching a movie or a sports 
and you are eating, the brain takes precedence over visual images. Mm-hmm. And what comes from the mouth is secondary. So you keep on eating until your plate is empty or your stomach is full. And actually, how much of that have you enjoyed? You've been distracted watching the television. <laughs> exactly. You don't even know what you consumed. <laughs> no. Half the time, half the food is gone before you know, oh, this is good. It tastes good. Right. That's it. So there's the first tip. Be, be present when you're eating. That's exactly. our first tip to our listeners. It, it, you have to enjoy what you are eating. Otherwise, what's the point in eating? The yes. whole point of eating is to enjoy what you eat. Yes. But you, you're not paying attention. And most people, they don't even have time to sit down and have a meal. They eat because they have to. And they are more interested in what they are doing, whether it is a business meeting, whether yes. it is at work, whether it is... You know, especially school teachers, I feel sorry for them because they don't have enough time, mm. maybe 20 minutes. They have to get the food, eat and go back to the class. So what advice could you give busy professionals? Because obviously a lot of our listeners are busy professionals and they're saying in an ideal world, I'd love to, to do that. But are there any tips you could give our listeners who are busy in terms of how they could eat that's, that's more beneficial for, for their digestion? The idea is primarily eat what you enjoy, but what you can chew. Secondly, set that 20 minutes time aside just for you. Don't be distracted by anything else. Even more important, if there is food in your mouth, concentrate on that. You can talk when there is no food in your mouth. Now, the best example will be, if you look at toddlers, age from two to six, see how they eat. You will observe three things. One, They will eat only when they are hungry. Mm -hmm. What do adults do? When somebody offers food, we are all on a seafood diet, right? Seafood seafood diet, yeah. Seafood and eat it. (laughs) Or we we don't want to mess up the host. The host, no, Mm -hmm. you have to be nice to the host. Be polite. Or there's a party. No, if you don't eat, what's the point in going for the party? And you, you can't have your pudding until you finish what's on your plate. You can't yeah. have your dessert. No, that was yeah. another one we were taught as children, wasn't it? You need to finish everything on your plate, otherwise you don't get your treat. Can, can I tell you a story? Please do, please do. I, I was counseling 10 adults who were having weight problems. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I grew up in India and certain days I didn't feel hungry. And now I know why, because you were eating for me. Your parents told them there are starving children in India, eat. And you were doing that and I thank you. But now you can stop doing that. Oh, bless you. So yes, that is is how we changed the eating habits of children. Mm -hmm. So first is uh, toddlers don't eat until they are hungry. Second, if you give them 10 items, they will pick and choose what they enjoy. Mm -hmm. And third, once they are done, you cannot make them open their mouth. (laughs) No. So the toddler is deciding when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, and growing up normally on its own. That means there is a natural mechanism for food, nutrient intake control. Mm -hmm. They start losing it by age six. You know why? They start listening to their parents. Mm. Just like you said before, if you finish it, you can get your dessert. Mm -hmm. Or we don't have time to stop. We are on a long journey. You better eat. Yes. Then the school comes in. You have specific time to eat. Yes. So whatever you can eat, eat. Then there is sports. There are activities. You are in an employment. You don't have time. You have to eat. And then your family, everything is based on a schedule. 
Yeah. And we, we, we lose that connection with our bodies, don't we, to listen to when we're actually hungry exactly. and to actually need nutrition rather than just when our blood sugar levels have dropped and, and we're craving more yeah. sugar in our system or more yeah. glucose in our system. So the good news is the mechanism that you learned in your toddler years, that mechanism is still in your brain. It's innate, isn't it? It's a matter of reactivating it. And that can take anywhere from two to six months. You have to keep on trying it. You have to concentrate on what food is in your mouth. And you cannot be visually stimulating your brain when there is food in your mouth. Of course, from time to time, you will fall off, you will mess up. That's fine. That is normal. That is how you teach your brain to go back. And once you do that, you are in charge. Amazing. Not Amazing. a dietitian, not a nutritionist, not your doctor. You are in charge. That Taking is back the, control, isn't it? And owning your own health rather than expecting somebody else to, to do exactly. it for you. Yeah. You can take a medicine and bring your blood glucose level down. You can get, you're not treating a number, you're treating your body. Yes. So that is the point you have to understand. How can I take care of my body? Yeah. I don't want to take care of my blood sugar level. That is a symptom. That is not the disease. Yes. When you mention it can take two to six months to kind of reconnect with what, what we know as, as children and that way of eating, you mentioned being mindful of the food that's in your mouth and not being distracted by visual things. What else, what else can people do to reconnect with what we, we knew as children? Is there anything else well, that's important to, to do? If you are really serious, First, you have to, the moment you are ready to eat, you need to know this is a new way of doing. So my suggestion will be get a new plate, get new, new utensils, sit in a different chair. More, most importantly, make your own meals, mm -hmm. if at all possible. Experiment with different types of cuisine because then you want to enjoy it because you made it. Yes. And take each bite and don't go to soft foods. Mm -hmm. Make foods, of, you know, that you can chew. You have two things that you need to do. One is to control your blood sugar. At the same time, you need to provide the new 100 different nutrients for the body to function healthy, normal. Mm -hmm. You cannot get all the nutrients from one food group or one meal. That is why we have multiple meals. You have access to multiple meals, just like a supply chain management. Mm -hmm. There are different times that you can eat. So you don't have to get all the foods. But in general, I suggest that you plan on eating at least three different vegetables a day, three different fruits a day, and three different nuts a day. That's, That's a very good my tip. Rule of three, three vegetables, three nuts, three fruits. The quantity will be determined as you are eating. Mm -hmm. You can add some uh, non-vegetarian items, egg, fish, meat, whatever you like to that. But this is what you need to keep your health and immune system in balance. Amazing, amazing. And what would you say for, obviously, because obviously we can reverse type two diabetes and then we don't need to treat the symptom with the medication. What types of foods should type one and type two diabetics be, be consuming or be avoiding if they want to create better health within, within their bodies? Well, that's an excellent question. With type one, you need to take insulin. There is no question. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you won't survive. 
but the dose of insulin, the cost of insulin has skyrocketed. So with parents who have children with type 1 diabetes, the way to control the cost of insulin is to reduce the amount of glucose or carbohydrate they consume to the minimum that the child can get away with. Each unit of insulin takes care of 10 grams of carbohydrate. But if we can control the total energy intake from carbohydrates to less than 40%, Mm -hmm. growing children can use more. You don't need more than 40% energy from carbohydrate. If you do that, that you can control the cost of insulin. Is that the same um, guidance for adults as well, less than 40% from carbohydrates? With adults, insulin for me, with people with type 2 diabetes, insulin is more of a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. the way I look at it. So, but how can we eliminate blood glucose? The idea again is at the moment, we are in the developed country, 50% of the energy is coming from complex carbohydrate, grain-based and 70% in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Suppose you cut that into half. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is to, if you're eating two pieces of bread, go to one. Mm-hmm. If you're eating... So much pasta, cut that into, you may not be able to cut that into half in one day, but gradually go down. That is your objective. Every week, you cut down a little, cut down a little, take more time, mix it with things that you can chew because your enjoyment comes from the contact of the nutrients with the taste buds and smell receptors. Once you swallow it, you cannot enjoy it. Can you? No, that's very, very true. Whatever is, if you put three potato chips on in your mouth, what you're enjoying is the one at the bottom that is in contact with your taste buds. Yes. But you are consuming all three. It is like in the checkout counter in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. We can scan each item, but if you stack them together, only the bottom one is scanned, right? Yes. I'm loving your analogies, that, Dr. John. They're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what is happening. We are just swallowing it, waiting for the fullness of the stomach. Yeah. Wow, some wonderful tips there. And you you touched on type 1 diabetes for children, but for for adults with type 1 diabetes, is that a similar similar concept as adults with type 2 diabetes, just reduce the carbohydrates, same? Yes, both in in children, again, the objective is to reduce the cost. They do need insulin, they do need some carbohydrate. Whereas in adults, if you look at people who are, say, who lived in Alaska, the Inuits in Alaska, mm-hmm. they can go whale hunting for six months at a time. They did not grow any cultivated grains. Mm-hmm. Human Upright human beings have been on the earth for over 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. Grain farming started only about 12 to 15,000 years ago. Wow. So almost 35,000 years, human beings thrived without eating any cultivated grains. So you don't need it. Hmm. But the tradition, the way we are brought up, we need to have that bread, we need to have that rice, we need to have that pasta, Mm -hmm. which is okay, but the quantity is the problem. Yes, yeah. So cut that down to one half of what you are eating and how can your blood sugar go up? You don't need a medication if you are a type 2 diabetic. Medication is not doing any good to you. Yes, it will control your blood level. That is not control of the disease. And it's not allowing your body to heal either, is it? It's not the answer. Exactly. It's just putting a sticky plaster over a, 
a wound, isn't it? Right. So you have to understand what are you dealing with. When you have high blood sugar, where does it come from? If I don't put it in in my mouth, how can it be in my blood? Uh, Right now, what you're doing is I take it and then I use a medicine to drive it out of my blood. But still, it does not go out of my body. If you take insulin, you can bring your blood sugar level down. But where does it go? The, every type 2 diabetic has to ask the doctor, one, why am I being treated with insulin when I am resistant to it? Mm-hmm. Second, where does that sugar go when your blood sugar is down with insulin? Where does it go? Third, if, you, if I keep A1C below 7, can you guarantee that I will not have any complications of diabetes? We have to keep asking because diabetologists have been getting away without answering these questions for a long time. Yeah. So what the side effect is, there are gadget manufacturers, there are pharmaceutical companies who want to promote the blood glucose-based treatment. Yes. Because they will say now, oh, if only you know the level, you are in control. No, you are not. Mm. It's taking proper control, isn't it, by using prevention or preventative measures rather than just the treatment of the symptom. Exactly. Just knowing you have high cholesterol every minute, how does that help you? Yeah. And the the body has a wonderful way of healing, doesn't it, when we give it the nutrition and and the space to heal? Yes. Now, you may have heard of the COVID pandemic. People with type 2 diabetes are at a higher risk. Do you know why? Please do share. Okay. It is not that they catch the virus more easily than anybody else, but once they catch it, the virus multiplies faster in their body. So the question is why? Uh, Can I go on? Please do, Dr. John. I'm waiting. I'm waiting with anticipation. When somebody with the COVID uh, virus, when they cough, they sneeze, they spray the area with germs, with viruses, either in droplet form or in aerosol form. First of all, the droplet, the particle size is more than five microns, so it will drop to the ground because of gravity. Mm -hmm. Whereas the aerosol, it is lighter. It can travel up to eight, 10 feet, depending on the direction. So the first thing is, if you're going to, if you're talking to somebody who you're not sure, don't stay in front of him, go sideways. So whatever they cough out will go in front of you rather than towards your face. Mm -hmm. Now, suppose you happen to breathe in the virus. It goes through the nose into your sinuses. And the virus, you have seen the spikes on it. That's why it's called a coronavirus, right? There are spikes on the virus. One spike attaches itself to the cell wall. Mm -hmm. Another spike, like a drill, produces a hole in the cell wall. And then the virus gets in. The virus cannot multiply by itself. So what it does is it goes to the nucleus of the cell and there is a gene in charge of protein production. It forces the gene to create a blueprint of the virus. And then it attaches itself to a messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. The RNA is the messenger that takes the message with the blueprint of the virus from the nucleus to the manufacturing facility in the cell. Mm-hmm. And it gives the factory the order, create copies. And the factory cannot make a value judgment, whether it is a virus or a normal protein, it will just churn out more copies. 
Now, in order to produce the copies, the factory needs people to work and workers and energy. And the cell, the higher the glucose level in the body, there is plenty more energy compared to somebody with normal blood glucose level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, elevation of blood glucose creates pancreatic insulin. Insulin level is high. You know what insulin does? Insulin wakes up workers called the enzymes. It says, well, you know, we have work to do. Come on, come on. It encourages the workers to produce more copies of the virus. So between the energy and the workers, you produce more and more viruses. And from the sinuses, it drops down into your lungs. It starts infecting your lungs and you are in trouble. Mm. So in type 2 diabetics, they have a higher chance of complications, not a higher chance of getting the virus. But yes. once you get it, you are in more serious trouble compared to somebody who does not have diabetes. Very fascinating. Thank you for sharing that explanation with the listeners. I, I, I could talk to you for hours, Dr. John. You're a wealth of knowledge. And I think for our listeners out there who have um, got any form of diabetes, I'm sure they've learned lots today. And I think the key message that's coming through is it is within their control to you know, start not just controlling their blood sugar levels, but controlling their health by what they're putting in their mouth. And, you know, that's, that's the message I'm hearing from, from you is if you don't put it in your mouth, then your body doesn't have to deal with it. And it's exactly. what we're putting in our mouth that's going into our digestive system right. that is affecting our blood sugar levels. Exactly. You have to be in charge of your body. Don't give it to a doctor. Don't give it to a medicine. It's you a really are good in point. Yeah. And we know our own bodies as well, don't we, Dr. John? You know, if we listen to them, we get we, we can build up a connection with them and we get feedback. Yes, that's, and, and that instant feedback. The moment you introduce something in your mouth, your brain knows what it is, whether you are drinking coffee or tea or Coke or wine or anything. How does the brain know? Because there is feedback mechanisms already established. That is how, by the way, the toddler is controlled. They enjoy what they eat. And when the degree of enjoyment goes down, they stop. Wow. You know, Dr. Uh, Clara Davis, between the two world wars, did a fantastic study. Uh, she took 15 toddlers who have never been exposed to food other than breast milk. She took them into a hospital in a ward. And she wanted to find out, does the child have a natural control mechanism. And she prepared 30 different types, well, used 30 different uh, type of food to, and prepared them individually and put it on a tray. And the child has to taste it and decide what to eat. Then only the nurse will feed the child. And most of these children were underweight, malnourished, and two or three of them had rickets. Wow. That is the bone disease because of vitamin D deficiency. Mm -hmm. And she put a, a, tumbler, a, a small container full of cod liver oil on the tray of a child with rickets. And you know, that child voluntarily drank the cod liver oil. Wow. Until the rickets healed radiologically and then he stopped eating, drinking it. That's phenomenal. How can the it? child's brain know A, what is deficient in the body? Wow. B, what food source is needed? And three, how much? Mm. So that is the type of capacity or natural ability we have. What to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. See, if only we can listen to that. Yeah. 
And for any of our listeners out there saying, you know, that sounds wonderful, but how do I listen? Have you got any kind of, and we shared loads of tips already, but are there any specific tips on how to really listen to your body and connect to know what you really need? The the thing is, if you are, you know, first of all, you should feel the sensation of hunger. Then the brain knows, brain is telling you, okay, we need something. Just like you don't have to drink all the time. You drink when you're thirsty. Mm -hmm. That is one. Number two, sometimes you go and open the refrigerator and nothing is appealing. Why? Because your subconscious mind keeps tab of the requirements coming in from different parts of the body, what nutrients are missing. Mm -hmm. The subconscious mind knows that. And the subconscious mind also have a list of foods that you have obtained the same nutrients from in the past. Now, let me give you an example. Suppose you and I, we go to a buffet, 100 items for lunch. Mm -hmm. Okay. How many will you choose? Not the 100. Probably a handful of the 100. How many? Give me a number. Four, five, six. Maybe up to a dozen, depending on how hungry I am and how small. How many many will you put in the plate the first first time around? Oh, maybe two or three. Two or three. And on what basis? And what I'm drawn to in that moment, I guess. Right. In other words, you have been exposed to them before. You know they are good. You know you will enjoy them. Even though there are others you may have enjoyed it, this one looks more appealing right now. Yes. So you to put those on the plate and you sit down and you enjoy eating them. Okay. Suppose we go back to the same buffet for supper. Mm-hmm. Will you eat exactly the same three as you did for lunch? Probably not. Why not? You enjoyed it at that time, but so why not? <laughs> I guess our body's just craving different nutrients in that moment. And it exactly. goes back to the power three that you mentioned earlier, doesn't it? With the nuts, the fruits yes. and the vegetables. Right. So your subconscious mind knows what nutrients you already consumed from the previous meal. Mm-hmm. And it also has information from the body parts reporting to it that we need this, this and this. And your subconscious mind now will send a message to the conscious mind. The other foods look more appealing now because they have something that your body needs right now. So we have that capability. So it's a matter of allowing the brain to work. So sit down and the the personal enjoyment of eating is your personal enjoyment. Okay. There is no other enjoyment that you can enjoy to the fullest multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. Even sex, you cannot do that so many times a day. <laughs> so eh, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Take your time. And that is all I'm asking. So Dr. John, just going back to the buffet there. So if there's nuts and vegetables and fruit available, but then there's also the cakes and the cookies and the chocolate bars, and if any of our listeners out there are thinking, oh, well, I just go what I'm, go with what I'm drawn to, and that's a cookie or a cake, what advice do you give your patients when their cravings are taking over what their body actually needs in that moment? Well, nuts, and sometimes you can carry nuts or you can have dried fruits. These are all, once you become used to this way of thinking, you can make plans. But if nothing else, if you're hungry, you have to have a cookie, you do. That's fine. There is nothing wrong with that. But in general, that is what you have to do. You have to pre-plan and say, okay, what am I going to eat? That time, I have to set aside this much time for my meal. 
and I'm going to sit down and it's my private enjoying, you know, enjoyment time. Nobody should interfere with it. Amazing. And no screen time. So no visual distractions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When there is food in your mouth, but yeah. that does not mean you cannot have a socialized meal mm-hmm. or have fun with your friends. That is not what I'm saying. Yes. But if there is food in your mouth, then concentrate on it. Then what in between, tip. yeah, in between your chewing the bite, talk, enjoy it. You know, we, we are all social people. We need to enjoy. We need to have company. There's nothing wrong with that. In the meantime, cut down on the amount of grain-based foods. That, that's huge, isn't it? And I think that's a lovely way to kind of start wrapping up this podcast because I know I could ask you lots and lots and lots of questions and perhaps we'll get you back on again to talk about something else because I know you've got many passions, Dr. John. But um, if there was one thing you'd like to leave with our listeners, what would that be today? The, again, as I, I want to repeat again, be in charge of your body. And, and we all enjoy eating, but more, most important is enjoy what you eat. Yes. Yeah. If it's you just important. gobble it down, you're not enjoying. You're enjoying the act of eating, but not what you eat. So concentrate on what is in your mouth. Take your time. Chew it. Enjoy it. Your brain will tell you when you had enough, just like in the case of water. Amazing, amazing. So Keep that is simple. all you have to do. You have the faculties. Look at your the toddlers, whether your nieces or nephews or neighbors. How do they eat? How can they be happy and walk around, have fun on their own, controlling their food intake on their own? If they can do it, we can do it. We can learn a lot from children, can't we? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All you have to do is to observe them. And you will notice what I am talking about. The main thing is you have to convince yourself that you have the power. Yes. Some people are, they have tried different weight loss programs and mm-hmm. they have, they do well when there is, they are on the program. After that, they go back to the original way of doing and they fall back and they lose faith. Yes. They have to understand the formula for losing weight is different from the formula for maintaining the reduced weight. These are two different formulas. The weight loss companies will not tell you, if you ask them, I've asked them, what is the long-term maintenance of your weight loss? We say, oh, we don't measure it. You know why? Because people go back to the way of doing. Mm. But what I am suggesting is if you go gradually down by changing the way you eat, what you eat, then, you don't have to change anything when you reach your goal. It's a lifestyle right. change, Dr. John, rather than a diet and deprivation, just short term to be able to go on holiday or, you know, to get into that outfit for the Christmas party or whatever. It's, it's more lifestyle and, and a journey, isn't it? Is what you're saying is, is gradual well, changes. If you look at the way you gained weight, you did not gain 50 pounds in one year. You <laughs> actually gain one or two pounds a year and add on and add on. After age 35, it becomes a problem. And many people will say, oh, you can exercise. Oh, I gained weight because I could not exercise. No, that is not. After age 35, your muscles cannot generate the same amount of power. What took 20 minutes at your younger age to do something, now it takes 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. It takes longer. You have lost the hormones that support your muscles. So you need to correspondingly reduce your nutrient intake. That's another great tip, isn't it? Right. There is no formula that can apply. When I, how can I give you what to eat or how much to eat 
when I don't even know what your body is looking for. Yes. Yes. And that goes back to taking control of your own health rather than looking for a nutritionist or a doctor to do it for you. Right. It's it's guidance and advice on what to avoid or, you know, tips like we've shared today. But ultimately, we as individuals are responsible, aren't we? Yes. For our body, we have to be responsible. We know our body better than anybody else. The doctor can or the nutritionist can tell you in general. But when it comes to individuals, it is like, oh, this drug is effective 80% of the time. Okay. Do you belong to the 80 or the 20? How do you know? We don't. It's a very good point. Amazing, Dr. John. You're just a wealth of information and knowledge. It's fantastic. And I just want to thank you on behalf of the listeners for everything you shared with us today. Lisa, I thank you for having me. And again, I thank the listeners. All I am asking them to do is to listen to it, understand it. If it makes sense to you, that's good. Even then, what you want to do is for you to decide. You don't have to be in a hurry. Take your time gradually because the the longer you take to establish it, the the more likely you can stay with it. Amazing. Amazing. What a wonderful way to end the podcast. And yeah, it's about longevity, isn't it? And keeping it going. Yes, it is for the long term, not the short term, as he said, just to fit fit into a dress or look good in a in, in a and for an upcoming event no this is for the rest of your life and this is for your body this is for your health you have one vehicle and you can't trade it in like a car can you and get get an upgraded car <laughs> <laughs> exactly. it'd be nice wouldn't it if you could walk into the shop and go i'll have that body next week <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be wonderful but how, how much will you trade me for this body <laughs> like trade but, in your old car in <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh right. dear Oh, on that note, Dr. John, thank you so much for joining us. And if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, it's drjohnonhealth.com. Is that correct? Correct. Amazing. And my books are available on Amazon. As you said in the beginning, there are four books. Eat You Live is how to prevent type 2 diabetes and control body weight. The eight steps to reverse diabetes is for those who already have type 2 diabetes, how to reverse it. Amazing. Without medication, through the diet program or things that changes that we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Then there are two other books. One is to how to survive cancer. We did not touch on that maybe another time. I'd love to get you back to talk about that because it's a very important topic. If you have a minute, I'll give you in a nutshell. Please do. Shall I? Please do. And, and we'll, we'll warm our listeners up for the, the upcoming episode on, on surviving cancer. And if, if your child has cancer, what to do? We'll, do? we'll do another episode on that. But please do. Please warm our listeners up ready for that. Okay. Cancer is uncontrolled multiplication of a cell. Okay. In order to understand cancer, you need to understand controlled multiplication. If you get a cut in the skin, how does it heal? The exposed cells send a message to the nucleus. My neighbor is missing. And at the base of the skin, there are stem cells. Stem cells are the mother cells that produce baby cells. So the stem cells will produce baby cells. And from both sides, when they meet in the middle, they send a message to the nucleus, okay, our neighbors are back. And that message goes to a different gene. There is one gene to activate the cell production and another gene to inhibit or give a work order, stop work order, stop multiplication order. And now we have two copies of each gene, one from the mother and one from the father. 
Some people inherit a bad gene from the mother, as in the case of breast cancer people. Mm -hmm. that, but the father's gene will control it. That's why they don't have breast cancer from day one of your, their life. But if that second gene gets mutated, either through radiation or chemicals or infections, then you have a problem. Once the stem cells start multiplying, there is no order to stop it. Mm. And that is cancer, uncontrolled multiplication. Now, let me give you one hint of what I'm trying to say. Do you know every one of us is the product of a single cell, right? Mm -hmm. That single cell is called the zygote formed after the sperm fertilizes the ovum. Do you know where it happens? It does not happen in the womb. The fertilization takes place in the fallopian tube as the ovum is traveling through the tube. Wow. And so it forms one single cell. Do you know how many cells are there in the, the ovum or the fertilized ovum by the time it reaches the womb? I have no idea, Dr. John. 200. Wow. Now, what is the signal that allowed them or that told them to multiply? That has to be internally generated inside the cell, right? because it's not connected to the mother's body in any shape or form. Mm. It's traveling and dividing. And so that is the excellent example of controlled multiplication. Mm -hmm. Suppose that control is lost, then you have cancer. So these are the type of things that uh, I discuss in surviving cancer and especially in children. children. The average age of an adult with cancer is 60 plus. That is because they have to accumulate enough mutations to damage the genes. Mm -hmm. However, the average age of a child with cancer is six. Mm. So how can a child have cancer? Yeah. Wow. And then your, your other two books, and I'd love to get you back on the show, Dr. John, and talk about, you know, cancer and particularly children with cancer. And if you could share bits of your book with us in terms of if there's any parents out there, I mean, I've certainly got some, some people in mind who, who are, living with children with cancer. So yeah, let's get another episode organized and we can we can help some more listeners out there. I'll be happy to. Thank you so much. Dr. John, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for all your wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I can't wait to record the next episode. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> so for all our listeners out there, take care and stay safe. I'm Lisa Victoria, your co-host from across the pond in the United Kingdom. Thank, thank you. you and thank our listeners. Thank you.